This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Covaris, Ranchford Eye Center, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it's great to be back with you live today. This is a live program, and we'll be taking questions um, throughout the program. I'll give you some phone numbers now, and I'll be sure to give them again to you later, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You could also email me at info at alessimd.com. As many of you who follow the program know that I've been on the road a little bit. Uh, This past week, I was at the Big Sky Sports Medicine and Athletic Training Conference in Big Sky, Montana. I want to tell all our listeners that it is just a beautiful place. Um, Montana and being out west, even in winter, is just gorgeous. And it really gives you an appreciation for the beauty and everything our country has to offer. This particular conference is a very informal conference where they invite uh, people who are thought leaders in the area of concussion. And it's almost like an incubator or a think tank where you bring new ideas and expound upon them. And that's where a, a lot goes on. I'm going. I did some tapes of interviews. I taped some interviews with some of the speakers there uh, because some of the talks were just important for us to start thinking about, such as um, pediatrics and concussion, uh, the sex differences in the recovery of concussion, genetics and concussion. So, anyhow, I'm going to be doing a special show with um, several of those uh, interviews. This week, when I got back, I went for my annual eye exam at the Ratchford Eye Center. As many of you also know, Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford is a frequent guest on our program, so I was over at her office. I have to tell you, it's a wonderful office, not just the physical plant, uh, which is clean and spotless, but the staff are very patient. And here's how I know it. When you're sitting in the waiting room, you become an observer, to say the least. And I was so impressed by the front desk being very patient with the gentleman there. You know, when you go to a doctor now, it's not that easy. You know, you got to fill out all these forms. You don't know what's what anymore with the forms you have to fill out, right? We've got HIPAA and whatever it is, several different insurances. And her staff was so patient with this gentleman because you can imagine being older and trying to figure this out. And they were so patient um, that I couldn't help but mention it. But uh, Dr. Ratchford, and a thorough exam, I have to say, uh, my eye exam, everything went well. But um, again, very thorough exam. And uh, we always look forward to her coming on to the program. Uh, but uh, if you do need uh, an eye care or to see uh, an eye doctor, an ophthalmologist, um, I highly recommend Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford over in uh, Berlin, Connecticut. My guest today is going to be Dr. Tanya Bilchik. She'll be here in the studio with us. Uh, Again, a regular guest on our program. We get her in here at least once a year. And she's the medical director of the Hartford Headache Center in East Hartford, Connecticut. We're going to be talking about headache uh, for most of this program. And some of the real changes, the updates 
in treatment for migraine headache. There's no reason now for someone to sit around suffering from migraine headaches with the treatments available and the specialized care that's available in places like the Hartford Headache Center. February 9th. Today is the Feast of St. Apollonia. Now, that's an odd name, right? We don't hear it very commonly. So many fans of The Godfather will remember that that was the name of Michael's first wife, Apollonia. And she is a patron saint of those afflicted with dental diseases, toothache, and dentists in general. She was actually Egyptian and from the time of Alexandria around 1260. And she's also the patron saint of Catania, Sicily. And it's interesting because uh, two weeks ago I had a toothache. Not something I commonly get, but in, and I can tell you that it is excruciating. When you have an abscess or something such as that and you have to go through a root canal, which I did, and can tell you that it's not as bad as it used to be. It's really evolved. The whole root canal business, if I could call it that, the treatment, is pretty remarkable. Uh, in terms of using microscopes and it being uh, virtually painless. Uh, Having undergone several of these along uh, my lifetime, um, this was really uh, a good experience. Uh, But so today we remember St. Apollonia. In the news, we've been having a lot going on with this measles outbreak in Washington State, Clark County, Washington, and it's overlapped into Oregon. These are this is the pro, this is a man-made problem with these anti-vaccine activists. Among them is Robert F Kennedy Jr. I didn't know this. He is a prominent vaccine conspiracy theorist. How bizarre is that? Vaccines are probably the most important medical discovery in modern times. And yet, we have people who have get this philosophical differences with protecting the health of their children by not giving them the MMR vaccine. In the state of Washington, about 10% of all children are not vaccinated because of these philosophical differences. We've said this on the show before. There are people who have religious differences, although we don't know what that religion is. Every organized religion believes in vaccines. Right? Jehovah's Witnesses, people say they don't believe in blood transfusion, but they believe in vaccines. Mormons, Catholics, the Jewish faith, Muslims all believe in vaccines. So this is really bizarre. And when you put a name out that's respected, like the Kennedy name, it becomes even more bizarre. The children who have suffered from measles and died from measles were unvaccinated. Some could not be vaccinated because of childhood diseases that they had. They were immunosuppressed. They were too young to be vaccinated. So now we've put them at risk. Here's the good news to the story. Immunizations in the state of Washington generally run about 200 a week. They are now over 1,000 a week. So maybe some people are waking up and saying, whoa, maybe my philosophy is wrong because there is absolutely no medical evidence that these vaccines cause autism, period. There's no, there's no continuation. Just put a period at the end of that. So they're up to 1,000, so maybe some people are waking up. I am proud to be from the state of Connecticut in this regard because we have among the lowest rates 
of children who are unvaccinated. I think the national average is about 5%. We're significantly below that, which speaks to the fact that the citizens of the state of Connecticut understand medicine and understand the importance of vaccination. So anyhow, sadly, we will keep up with that story, uh, but uh, it's another tough one to swallow. Here's another one. In the state of Connecticut, we have an interesting challenge. Uh, Physicians, one-third of all our physicians are over the age of 50 in Connecticut. And guess what? We're not attracting a lot of young physicians to come to Connecticut. Why? Because it's a tough state to practice in. Uh, Malpractice uh, rates are high. Um, There are a lot of suits against physicians, many frivolous. Uh, I think it's like 90% of them are frivolous, actually. Um, But when you look at this, a third of them are over 50 and we're not attracting new physicians. So there's a problem. The other problem is that the lowest socioeconomic rung has the least access to medical care in the state of Connecticut. So here's a solution. Why aren't we using physicians who want to retire and work for free? This problem came to me from a colleague who called me and I looked into this. So here's the story. A physician decides to retire from their private practice. At the end of that period of time, you need to buy an insurance policy that they call a tail. The tail is a blanket coverage for everything you've ever done in your practice. If you fully retire, never see another patient again, and surrender your medical license, the insurance company gives you that for free. If you retire but want to work for free at a clinic and not be paid, you have to buy that tail. In this physician's case, it was $16,000. So you're going to have to pay $16,000 to work for free. In addition to that, you have to still buy your medical license, which is in the state of Connecticut, another $565. So to go out and work for free you have to pay a lot of money. This doesn't make any sense. So what's happening is physicians saying, geez, well, maybe I won't go work for free. I'll just surrender my license, get the free tail, and go fishing. That's not what we want. That's not productive for anybody. And we need to get our legislators onto this. In this case, the physician is fortunate enough. He's, he's going to volunteer at a clinic run by Yale. So they will provide med mal insurance going forward, but they're not responsible for his previous practice. So it's an interesting dilemma. But our legislators, if we're going to improve health care here in Connecticut, especially at free clinics, or in this case, he wants to go and teach young physicians on his own time through Yale, Just be in clinic and be a resource to young physicians who want to gain from his experience. It's going to cost him money. It doesn't make sense. So anyhow, I throw that out for all of you to really think about and see what we can do about that in the future. We're going to take a short break. Then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. Tanya Bilchik. We're going to be talking about headache, a lot of different aspects of headache. The phone number's here, 860-522-9842. And 1-800-966-9842. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. 
I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome my guest here in the studio, Dr. Tanya Bilchik. Dr. Bilchik, as regular listeners would know, is the medical director of the Hartford Headache Center at 144 Main Street, East Hartford, Connecticut, and it is now part of ProHealth Physicians. Um, Tanya, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, let's talk a little bit about headache in general. Now, there are a lot of people who go out and treat headache, but um, specifically, uh, you're a neurologist who treats right. headache. And, and it's always been a neurologic specialty, but there are other people out there doing, I don't know, pain management, things like that. Talk a little bit about the neurologic approach to headache. Okay. Well, actually, most patients with headaches start out by seeing their primary care physician. And unfortunately, a lot of patients are not diagnosed as having migraine if they have migraine, unless they go to their doctors and say, I think I've got migraine. They get misdiagnosed as having tension headaches, sinus headaches, and all sorts of other things. Or the other piece of the puzzle is they go and see a chiropractor because they think the headaches are coming from their necks. So um, the commonest reason for somebody seeing a provider for headache is actually migraine because everybody has tension headaches. But tension headaches aren't disabling. When your headaches start to become disabling, you have to think they're probably migraine. And um, migraines are moderately severe headaches with some associated symptoms, light sensitivity, noise sensitivity, and or nausea. A lot of people think that because they do not have the aura, which is very typical for some people with migraine, they don't have migraines. The aura only happens in about 15 to 20% of people with migraine. So migraine is often misdiagnosed as sinus, tension, neck, chiropractic. They go and see a homeopath because they think it's diet. They go to their primary care doctor. They go to the ENT because they think it's sinus. And my kind of theory is if your headache's disabling, the first thing you need to think of is migraine. Well, one of the problems, I'm glad you brought it up, in patients who have gone and had chiropractic treatment, they might get some immediate relief for some right. reason, but then they develop a rebound headache. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, in other words, maybe they need an adjustment every three weeks, then it's two weeks, then it's one week, and now they've got this rebound. So can you talk about the problems with rebound headache? Sure. I don't actually have as much experience with chiropractic treatment and rebound headache. What I think the commonest cause of rebound headache is actually medication overuse. Um, typically, people that take too much medication containing caffeine, like Excedrin, um, Excedrin contains 65 milligrams of caffeine per tablet, and it's a combination analgesic. So people think that when they're taking medication to help their headaches, the headache will go away, but then the headache comes back again. And before you turn around, you're taking too much medication. And so your Excedrin that you were taking once or twice a day becomes two to four times a day. From two to three times a week, it becomes every day. And before you turn around, you have daily headache and medication overuse. And that's a hard habit to break because you think something is good for you, but it's actually lowering your headache threshold and making you more predisposed to having more headaches. Yeah, one of the problems, I guess, in my practice, since I see a lot of athletes, I don't think there's a training room now without a chiropractor. And so a lot of athletes are getting chiropractic treatment and then self-treating. 
Um, they kind of do some self-manipulation of their neck. And I see the same symptoms of this rebound headache right. um, that, that creates a problem. I think you also have to be careful because neck pain is a very common symptom in migraine. Absolutely. 75% of people with migraine have neck pain with their migraines. And guess what? You treat the migraine, the neck pain gets better. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit about – we have a few minutes. I want to talk a little bit about the, the newer classification of migraine. Okay. Because we used to think about migraine with aura, migraine without aura, and, and now there are a lot of subclassifications, if you could talk a little right. bit about it. Actually, the International Headache Society classification, it's in its third generation, called, migraine is an episodic headache. So typical migraine without aura is an episodic headache lasting from 4 to 72 hours often unilateral, one-sided, with light sensitivity, noise sensitivity, and or nausea. Throbbing headache is one of the symptoms. Headache worse with activity and exercise is another symptom of migraine. So headache worse with exercise is probable migraine. Then we have migraine aura. We have migraine aura with headache. You can have migraine aura, which is visual. You can have migraine aura, which is sensory, in other words, numbness and tingling. And you can have migraine aura without headaches. So people will get their visual symptoms, flashes, zigzags, light symptoms, and not followed by your typical migraine headaches. So it can be confusing. What about the the trigeminal uh, uh, autonomic craniopathies? I mean, we, it's a whole other subcategory, but I think it affects a lot of people, especially cluster headaches. Okay. So, in fact, and it's another one of the international society classifications, and they call them TACs, or trigeminal autonomic cephalgias. The biggest group is actually, as you mentioned, is cluster headache. Now, anybody with a cluster headache knows they are excruciating, severe, one-sided headaches around the eyes with tearing of the eyes, stuffy nose. It feels like somebody's drilling a hole in your eye, and they're also known as suicide headaches because they are so severe. They are usually shorter lasting than migraines. By definition, they last from 15 minutes to 180 minutes. So they're shorter, but significantly more severe. And another cluster symptom is when someone has a cluster headache, and there are more men than women have clusters, whereas migraines more women than men. During the cluster, somebody cannot sit still. They're irritable. They pace around. They're uncomfortable. Whereas during a migraine, it hurts to move. So migraineurs tend to be a little bit still when they have a headache. So Clusters are the most disabling 10 out of 10 type headache. But there are also other headaches in that classification. With cluster headache, we usually see it in smokers. And the number of smokers has gone down. Have you seen a decline in the number of patients you see now with cluster? I actually haven't. But I also, when you're a headache center, you tend to see more people with clusters. And unfortunately, it takes up to six years for a person with clusters to be appropriately diagnosed with cluster. I actually haven't seen a decline in cluster headache patients hmm. because I still think, you know, it's um, a smaller population than migraine for sure, but it's a two-thirds to three-quarter male population. And so I'm still seeing, and, you know, typically it seems to be in a slightly older age group in my practice, but they usually, they can start when they're younger. But I do think of my clusters as the most disabled group and it's hard to get an appointment, but when you call and say, I'm in a cluster, we get you in as soon as we possibly can. That's great. That's great. Uh, we're going to take a short break. I want to give everybody the phone numbers again, 860-522-9842. Uh, 
and 1-800-966-9842. You can also email me a question at info at alessimd.com. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be opening up the phone lines for questions for Dr. Tanya Bilchik. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and my guest today is Dr. Tanya Bilchik, and we're talking about headaches. And I guess, Tanya, one of the things that's most alarming for a parent is to have a child suffering from headaches. Right. And they start young, too. Yes. Sadly. So can we talk a little bit about it? Sure. You know, migraines occur in kids, and I've seen kids that have you know, they're probably adolescents now and I'll go, when did you first have a headache? And mom will be sitting next to the kid and they'll, when they were three years old, they were holding their head and crying and saying my head hurts. So I do believe that toddlers can have headaches and as they get older, they obviously can explain things a lot more clearly. And what's interesting about headaches in kids is boys and girls actually have about the same amount of migraine in children, but as girls hit puberty, they start to become much more the kind of the higher number of patients. So equal in boys and girls after the age of 13, it's a two-to-one female-to-male ratio. And yes, kids get migraine. And in fact, there's another variant of migraines in kids that's often misdiagnosed as stomach problems in kids, and we call them abdominal migraines. And so they may start off with abdominal migraines when they're little and turn into head migraines when they're older. Do you see that more in children, abdominal migraine? Because I don't see that much in an adult. No, and in fact, the diagnosis of abdominal migraine is children. When somebody gets referred to me and they're an adult with unexplained abdominal pain, I can't put that into a migraine category. It really is a kid a kid condition. And there's another condition that's very closely related to migraine in children, and it's unexplained cyclical vomiting. So there are a lot of abdominal symptoms in children with migraine. What's interesting, I guess, about that is because a lot of abdominal symptoms in children are treated with amitriptyline, Elevil. Right. Like irritable bowel and things like that, which is a great drug for migraine. Absolutely. So do you think that's where you see some overlap? I think it's the gut-brain axis. Okay. the gut and the brain are totally connected. And it is true. Uh, And and we hear more about that. Um, Talk about treatment in children. Many often children's headaches get better when they sleep. Right. And actually, adult headaches get better when they sleep too. So the difference between adult and children migraine, if we're really talking classification, is the definition of migraine is 4 to 72 hours in adult. A pediatric migraine can be as short as one hour. They're much more intense, severe, shorter lasting, improved with sleep. But we use a lot of the same medications. Although some of the migraine-specific medications aren't approved in kids, ibuprofen can work pretty well. And in fact, I had a son who in the age of 12 was getting really severe headaches after playing sport. He would go lie down. He said he felt a little bit sick. I'd give him two Advil and he'd go to sleep and he'd wake up like nothing had ever happened. But we also do prevention in kids. And one of the medications we use for prevention that we don't use in adults is something called ciproheptadine or periactin, which is actually an antihistamine. You know, it's an old drug. I still use it, but it's one of those old, uh, inexpensive drugs that you probably don't see very often. Right, and it actually works better in kids than it does in adults. So under the age of 13, 14, it's a very reasonable idea as a first choice. And then we go on to some of our adult medications, like as you mentioned earlier, amitriptyline. 
How about trip dance uh, for episodic migraine in children? Do you okay. use it? I do. Um, I only treat 14 and above. And you could use brand names. We're okay oh, with that. Oh, you can use – okay. Well, we use uh, – there are a couple of the triptans that are actually approved in children. One of them is Maxalt or Rhizotriptan, and that's approved in adolescence. And then Zomic nasal spray or Zomatriptan nasal spray is also approved in adolescence. Um, I, think, I think all of the triptans are safe in kids over the age of 12. Um, it's what was FDA approved and which companies decided to study their drugs in adolescence, but they've used them all, uh, usually just starting in lower doses than you would in an adult. Can you talk a little bit about what a triptan is? It's an interesting story. I think it was back, was it 1993 we started using triptan, something right. about that time? Maybe you started using it before me. Um, but um, when the triptans came on the market, can you talk a little bit about how they work so people understand? Because the medications we're all talking about here today are non-narcotic medications. None right. of the medications we use are habit-forming. So They are, and they actually have no pain medication in them at all. We There's a whole class of triptans. They actually first came out in injectable form of sumatriptan, which was injectable imitrex, in the early 90s, 93, 92. Then they became, then the oral formulations came out, and they're actually working on the brain. They're not working on pain receptors anywhere else other than the brain. They're pretty specific. And they have a couple of effects. They decrease neurotransmission, in other words, nerve-to-nerve transmission. They are also very potent vasoconstrictors. In other words, they narrow blood vessels. And in the olden days, the theory on migraine was you had dilated or swollen blood vessels, and that's why they were throbbing and they were painful. We know that's not migraine anymore. We now think migraine is a much more neurochemical condition. And so these triptans cause narrowing of the blood vessels as well, which is why we can't use them in people with cardiovascular or stroke with cardiovascular disease if you've had a heart attack or you've had a stroke. So they're really not narcotics at all. They're working on the brain. So with the triptans, I mean, this has really evolved and we've really gotten into non-narcotic therapy, as I was mentioning. And and I want to make sure everybody knows that there's really no role that I could think of for a narcotic in the treatment of migraine. No, not anymore. Um, we really don't. And in fact, the narcotics and the opiates lower your migraine threshold, predisposing you to more headache. And uh, in fact, a true migraineur who goes to the emergency room does not want to get morphine or any opiates because, in fact, it makes them feel worse. Let's talk a little bit about the acute migraine and the use of intravenous therapy because right. that's something uh, we've been using for years. People come to the emergency room and giving them a variety of medications. And now you've started to do that in the office for your patients who have acute migraine. Right. So one of the things that is very important in people with migraine is they become dehydrated because they're nauseous, they're throwing up, they become dehydrated. So just giving people a liter of fluid intravenously often helps significantly. And then to that, we call it the cocktail. To the cocktail, we add magnesium. We add something called ketorolac, which is an anti-inflammatory. We can add a steroid, dexamethasone. And we add an anti-nausea medication, Reglan, uh, metoclopramide. And that combination really seems to help an acute headache. But if you, you know, really the fluid plus a lot of these medications and uh, patients will walk out of the emergency room or an infusion center significantly better than when they started. 
After they leave, what do you put them on? Just regular oral medication? Yes. Um, they can either take an oral steroid, but often patients are, the headache that started at a 10 out of 10 has gone down to a 2 out of 10. And hopefully with a few days of sleep and rest, it'll help. We only use the infusions and the intravenous therapies for somebody who has had a long migraine that's not responding to regular medication. Usually it's been going on for two or three days, and that's called status migraine. Yeah, and those are usually people who have become ill from other – they start throwing up and, and have really becoming dehydrated. And they're in this vicious cycle. Right, and even if you're not throwing up and you just can't eat because in migraine your stomach doesn't absorb, you basically – it sits there like a big empty bag and it's called gastric stasis. So even oral medications aren't well absorbed and they may not be as effective. That's an interesting thought. Um, we mentioned magnesium uh, and some of the homeopathic remedies. A lot of patients – are anti-medication, right? I don't want to take drugs. But when we give them magnesium oxide or vitamin B2, they don't consider that a drug for right. whatever reason. Um, are you using more homeopathic remedies? Well, I, same story. I have patients that say exactly the same as they do to you. I don't want medication, but if they can get something from the health food store, and you've got to be careful of the brands because not everything's equal. So there are a couple of things. I always recommend 400 milligrams of magnesium, 200 to 400 milligrams of vitamin B2. Sometimes CoQ10 can be helpful. Sometimes Feverfew can be helpful. Butterbur, which is a little homeopathic shrub is that, that comes from Europe. Is that a little bit Europe. of a no-no now, Butterbur? Well, you've got to be careful because there have been some reports of liver toxicity with a Butterbur. And again, with all of these natural medications, they're not regulated. So you don't always know what you're getting. Yeah, I think that's that's been a big problem. Um, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back to wrap it up in our last segment with Dr. Tanya Bilchik. I want to talk a little bit about some of the new medications, the CGRP antagonists. We want to talk a little bit about treatment in pregnancy. What does the birth control pill have to do with migraine headaches? We're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And we're chatting with Dr. Tanya Bilchik. In our last segment here, we're talking a lot about migraine and headaches. And uh, Tanya, a couple of new things on the horizon. Um, one is neuromodulation, right? We have the Cephaly device. Uh, and, and it's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting field to me because I don't, I don't see where it does any harm. And I think there's a significant, at this stage, I think there's a significant placebo effect. Yeah, exactly. There um, there are a couple of these devices. The cephaly you mentioned is one of them. You put it on your forehead and you leave it on for about 20 minutes a day for headache prevention. And it's little electrodes on the forehead. And the theory is, is that it is stimulating the supraorbital nerve, which is the nerve that comes above the eyebrow to the forehead. And um, by stimulating this nerve, you will decrease the migraine frequency and the migraine intensity. So it's a preventive. There's another device that you put onto the neck, onto the vagus nerve, and that's called the gamma core device. And it's the same kind of idea. If you can stimulate the vagus nerve, you can potentially reduce headache. They've used them in acute headache and in prevention. And in fact, the gamma core is a non-invasive way of treating cluster headache. And you put your stimulator on at the start of your cluster headache, and it potentially will treat the cluster headache. 
That's it helped? very interesting. Has it helped in your experience? I've got one patient that really does help. Um, he was a chronic cluster. He had the dead. By having chronic cluster, it basically means this poor person was having cluster headaches every day and it had it for more than a year. And it actually did decrease the intensity of that cluster headache as long as he used it as soon as he felt the cluster attack coming on. So I do think that there's a place. There are people that can't take the tryptan medications. It's worth trying. People that are overusing medication. It's one of those things that has such a low downside. It, it, right. it wouldn't hurt. It's like chicken soup. That's right. Exactly. All right, CGRP antagonists. Wonderful. Well, these are brand new. They were the first one is approved in May of last year. FDA approved. The second was approved in July, and the third one was a few months after that. So now we have three CGRP monoclonal antibody blocking agents. So what these guys do is they will either attach to the CGRP molecule itself or the peptide itself. And one of them attaches to where the CGRP binds. So I'm just going to back up. What is CGRP? CGRP is a very potent neuropeptide that is actually released. So it's a neurochemical. It's released when the nerves are stimulated. So it's involved in nerve transmission and pain transmission. So if you can block that CGRP by attaching something inert, either to the CGRP itself or to where the CGRP binds, you can prevent migraine. So that was the theory behind it. And so in the last year, we've actually had a revolution with three drugs being available. Because they are monoclonal antibodies, they're a protein. It's an immunoglobulin, IgG. Um, It has to be injected because it's such a big molecule. It wouldn't pass through the gut and it would be broken down by the gut. So these are medications that are injected monthly to prevent migraine, and they've been unbelievably successful. It's been really interesting in the last six months to see. So we use it as a preventive. If people are getting too many headaches, chronic migraine, haven't responded to other preventive medications, or patients with significant disability, a once-a-month injectable, and our goal is to have 50 to 75% headache reduction in three to six months. It's pretty amazing uh, for patients that we've shared that I've referred over to your office. It has been phenomenal because they can still take their other medications on top of it. So it's not like you're getting rid of a lot of medication. They could still take their as-needed medications on top of the CGRP antagonist. And, in fact, when I start people on the CGRPs, I leave them on their other prevention medications as well until we start to show some significant benefit. And I found that this has been most beneficial in my patients with chronic migraine. And again, by chronic, it means they have more headache days than non-headache days. And this is a very big disabled group of patients. And they're on a lot of medications. So not only are they on a lot of acute medications, but on average in my practice, they're on two and sometimes even three preventive medications. So it's nice to be able to get rid of some of the oral medications that have side effects because the CGRPs, even though you have to inject yourself, don't seem to have any side effects other than the fact you've got to inject. Uh, From my standpoint, it's interesting because it does not affect athletic performance either. No. Uh, So it, it, and and academic performance. So it's really been a great classification. Um, And it doesn't mix up with any other medications either. So it doesn't interact with other meds that you're taking. It doesn't interact with birth control pills. It doesn't interact with anything else that people are taking. What's next? What's next? In headache. In headache treatment. We've talked a little bit about CGRP. We've talked about backing up over uh, 
tryptans, uh, neuromodulation. What's the next big thing we're going to hear in terms of the treatment of migraine headaches? Well, there's some new orals that are coming out in the next year or two. They are also CGRP, but they're small molecules, and they're going to be using them in acute migraine. So you would just take it as needed as opposed to taking the monthly? Both. There's actually going to be different types of orals that are going to, they belong to a family called the GPANT, G-E-P-A-N-T family. And they're small molecules. They're going to be blocking CGRP. Uh, They're being, they're in kind of experimental phases at the moment. And they're either going to be used for acute migraine or preventive migraine. So, you know, because not everybody can take a tryptan for acute migraine, we're going to have different classes of medications used for acute migraine. And I'm hoping what's next is we find the right drug for the right patient for prevention so that nobody has significant headache disabilities so that they can keep functioning like normal people and not have to worry about having a headache every day or frequent headache that affects life. Are we winning the battle? I mean, are you seeing changes in terms of, I mean, we've been in practice a long time. Um, Do you see the opportunity where more of our patients are leading productive lives with migraine headache? I think we're getting there because we do have better preventive treatment. I think the first battle in migraine is the most simple. It's actually getting the right diagnosis. There are so many people that have migraine that are not appropriately diagnosed as having either chronic migraine or episodic migraine. So the biggest battle, number one, is recognize it's a migraine. Number two, get on the right treatment. So I think we've got the tools. Now we just have to get everybody, you know, to be aware of migraine. Uh, I think that's a a great way to move. I guess you have to educate first uh, before we can treat. Uh, And that's the first rule. Uh, Tanya, I want to thank you. Thank Thank you you. for uh, spending time with us today and and talking about migraine headaches. And thanks for everything you do for our patients. Thank you for having me again. Uh, It's been great. Many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Olko, is on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Uh, next week, we're going to have a new program that I taped uh, since I will be on the road. Actually, not too far. I'll be at the Mohegan Sun uh, where we have uh, mixed martial arts. And then the next week, uh, I am due to be in Los Angeles with the Professional Bull Riders Tour. Um, so we have some taped programs, so we won't be taking phone calls with those. And then I'm going to be back live the first week of March, and uh, we'll have a new show for all of you. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Just go to www.registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Covaris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.